take your copy of God's Word, and let's turn together to the book of Hosea. Picked up on this minor prophet a couple of weeks ago. We're returning there tonight, Hosea chapter 1. Remind you one more time, having Jesus always offers joy. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. Good way to remember that. Maybe that makes it more confusing. I don't know. Hosea chapter 1. Let's read all 11 verses again this evening. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for calling Hosea. Thank you for inspiring him and speaking through him by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would enable us now to receive these words. Work in us now by that same Spirit to understand and to apply these words to our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder, uh, how would you try and illustrate the mercy of God to an unbeliever? What, what kind of picture might you use if you wanted to take mercy from being uh, something uh, of an abstraction and making it a, a picture, something that they could relate to? Maybe, uh, maybe you would choose to draw from your own life and, and talk about how there have been times in your own life, seasons in your own life, when you've experienced God's mercy. Each of us has sinned in extraordinary ways. 
we recognize that even the smallest sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And yet, you and I have committed sometimes heinous sins and over and over as though to entice God to punishment, to punish us, to discipline us. Here I am. Yet God has not abandoned us to hell because He has chosen to receive us instead. That instead of giving us what we deserve, He's given us what Christ deserves. How do we demonstrate that mercy to a non-believer? Perhaps, perhaps you could use the picture of Hosea. The first thing I, I think we ought to notice as we come back to this prophet is that God has given this picture. He's called Hosea to go and marry a wife of whoredom. That is, uh, maybe a, known, a woman who is known in the community for her, her harlotry. Maybe as Hosea goes and gets Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, somebody that everybody would have known in the community, he goes and he chooses her and he marries her. He binds himself to this woman. Um, there's a picture in it. If we look at the text, we notice that uh, the picture that, that God wants us to see is, is, is that Israel is the woman. Gomer represents Israel. But in understanding the whole picture, I think it's important for us to back up one previous step. And the first thing that we should notice here is that God bound himself to an unfaithful people. If Gomer represents Israel, Hosea represents God himself. And it is Hosea, don't you see, who's going to Israel, uh, uh, going to Gomer and initiating the relationship, binding himself as a husband to this woman to provide for her, to protect her, to provide for her everything that she needs. Um, and Hosea is the picture of God himself binding himself to an unfaithful people. Hosea's life, therefore, presents a picture of God's bond to his people. It's a picture, isn't it, that enables you and me to relate to the wickedness of Israel's sin and in some way to, to put ourselves in God's shoes. Don't you see the, the perspective that we're being asked to take here? We're, we are not taking the perspective of Israel and seeing God approach us in mercy. No, Hosea, uh, God through Hosea is asking you to see things from his perspective. He wants you to see him coming down to this people. And you and I remember that God is a husband to his people. And the people of Israel then are compared to an unfaithful wife. One who goes after every other man. We cannot deny the picture then 
that God willingly bound himself to a woman who was destined to betray him, to be unfaithful. We go all the way back, don't we, to Genesis chapter 15 and, or even to Genesis chapter 12 when, when God approached Abraham and he took him out of Ur of the Chaldees from a family who worshipped moon gods and he came down to that man and he said, I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. I will give you land and an inheritance. And God, in that moment, when he made that covenant in Genesis 15 with Abraham, did something extraordinary. He bound himself to this man. And he passed through the rent pieces of the animals that Abraham had divided into two. Innocence saying, let the curses of this covenant come upon me. I and I alone am responsible for maintaining you in faithfulness. Therefore, this is a gracious covenant by God, isn't it? God did not owe this covenant to Abram. God was not seeking, or Abraham was not seeking God at the moment. God sought him out, knowing full well the ultimate destiny of the people that would come from him. Yet the wife that God chose for Himself was destined to unfaithfulness. Turn with me, if you would, over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. The people are, in Deuteronomy, on the edge of the land. They're about to go in. God will call Moses to go up on the top of Mount Nebo and there he will be able to see all the land. God will show it to him just as this, the devil did on the top of the temple uh, or top of the mountain to uh, Christ. God would show him all of the land. But notice these words in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. Joshua has been appointed to succeed Moses. Listen to these words. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. You see what's happening here? God, even when He approached Abram, knew that the people who came from this man, the people that he created, the, the ones that he made into a great nation, they would ultimately fall away and blaspheme him. They would go after other gods. And yet, he bound himself to them in an incontrovertible covenant. 
One of the things that we can take away from thinking about this whole picture of, of God binding Himself to Israel, not because of Israel, nothing special about them, knowing that they would be unfaithful to Him, knowing that they would wander away from Him. We remember that God's work of salvation is not because of anything good that He has foreseen in us. God has saved you seeing all of your sin. Every bit of it. The sin that you've committed in the past, the sin that you perhaps are engaged in now, and the sin that you will commit in the future. God binds Himself to you in a covenant of salvation. Our confidence, therefore, our confidence in this promise of God is not, not in ourselves, not in, in our ability to, to remain faithful to the Lord. Our confidence in the promise of God is in His unchanging love for us in Christ Jesus. The first thing that, that God points out to us is that He is the one who went and picked this wife. Not because of any virtue in her, but to demonstrate His own faithfulness. Well, what happened? The inevitable did. There's nothing surprising to us that comes out of Hosea, is there? Everything that is happening here, all of these curses that God uh, elucidates to Israel are all ones that He predicted way before. Generations before. When we think about Hosea and, and how marvelous, wonderful it is that, that a man like Hosea, hundreds of years before, would predict certain things about the Christ. Well, that wasn't the first prophecy fulfilled. God Himself to Moses predicted Israel's faithlessness. And here we are. The first thing we see then is that God has bound Himself to a people who could not be faithful to Him. Next, we notice in verses 4-9 to that as a result of their faithlessness, the inevitable comes. God promises curses. God promises curses. This is illustrated for us in, in three children. Gomer... This wife of harlotry conceived and bore Hosea a son, we notice in verse 3. Or did she really? Isn't that the question? This is a wife of harlotry. The constant question that's asked when unfaithfulness is suspected. Is this really my child? Does he bear my resemblance? Why are his eyes an odd color? Likewise, we ought to notice that these sons of God are not identifiable as God's children, are they? Thus, there are three elements of the curse. The first one we notice in verses 4 to 5. And the Lord said to him, Call his name, your first son, Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley 
of Jezreel. Now, uh, Jezreel was a, a valley of iniquity of some sin, uh, in some sense. You might remember the story of a man named uh, uh, Naboth from 1 Kings chapter 21. And, and in that chapter, we see a man by the name of Ahab. And there he is in a, in a kingly palace in the valley of Jezreel. And he looks down to his next door neighbor, Naboth, and he has a beautiful vineyard. Well, Ahab wants that vineyard for himself. So he sends messengers down and he asks for Naboth to sell him his vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't sell you my vineyard. This is my family land. The the Deuteronomic Code prevents me from selling it to you. It's mine, my inheritance. Well, as the godly man that he is, Ahab went and cried to his wife Jezebel who went and had Naboth slaughtered. And Ahab stopped sucking his thumb and went and took the field. This valley of Jezreel, therefore, it's a field of blood. It's a place of iniquity. One of the most heinous crimes in Israel of that time. God says, therefore, though, that He would punish He would punish Israel for the iniquity of Jehu. Again, reflecting on the period of Ahab's reign and and the bloodshed of Jehu. Jehu was an interesting king. He was the tenth king in Israel. So, representing the divided kingdom, he was the king of the northern kingdom. Interestingly, his father was Jehoshaphat, one of the good kings of the south. So he was a southern boy who went to reign up north and and God appointed him to judge the house of Ahab. He was appointed to bring judgment on this kingdom. Notice with me in 1 Kings chapter 19, the appointment of Ahab to this task. It's the transition point. In Elijah's ministry of prophecy, he's going to appoint Elisha to be his successor. He has just seen the Lord's victory over the prophets of Baal. And here we find that he is to go and appoint a man by the name of Jehu in 1 Kings 19.17. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God appoints uh, Jehu, this king from the south, to, um, to work out the judgment upon the house of Ahab. And boy, did he carry out that judgment viciously. Turn over a couple of pages to 2 Kings chapter 9. Look with me at verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, the place that we're talking about, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? 
And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the, her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field. In the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. So his judgment of the house of, of Ahab begins with the slaughter of his wife. Blood is poured out upon the field of Jezreel, now a new blood. He went on in chapter 10, notice in verse 11, he went on to strike down the entire house. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. All his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. But one thing to note about Jehu, he did not depart from the sins of his father. 2 Kings 10, 28-31. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Therefore, God carries out a judgment now. The same judgment that He carried out on Ahab will be carried out on the house of Jehu and indeed on all of Israel. And so God pronounces the first curse that He will bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And notice the second curse with me, the verses 6-7. to seven. Uh, Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, or no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. God pronounces the second curse. Now, and not only will uh, the kingdom be brought to an end, but there will be no mercy. You remember as we reflected back that when God said to Elijah, but 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal and I will preserve them. There's no word of a preservation here of Israel. The household will be brought to an end. Uh, the term Jezreel uh, can mean scattered. This is what God will do to the people of Israel. He will scatter them. They will be now like sheep who are without a shepherd. There's a third curse in verses 8-9. to 
When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, a third son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Here, the one who took to himself as a husband takes a wife, now declares that he is divorcing her, sending her away. Those who were called by my name, the ones upon whom I put my name, and you were called my son, now you are not my people. He will put an end to their identity as God's people. In 2007, the Oakland Raiders took a chance on a young man by the name of Jamarcus Russell. They signed him to a massive contract, $61 million, of which $39 million was guaranteed. He didn't have to play a snap, and they would pay him $39 million. Well, Jamarcus Russell, in experiencing this incredible uh, gift from the Oakland Raiders, became lazy. One of the stories about this young man who was at least for one season, an incredible quarterback for the Bayou Tigers. He was given blank videos, and the team told him that those videos contained uh, blitz packages from their upcoming opponent. Well, the next day, Jamarcus came to the team meeting, and he told them that he had studied those tapes that contained nothing. The wealth, the love, the benevolence that the L.A. Raiders, the Oakland Raiders, poured out upon upon Jamarcus Russell was taken for granted. And here we ought to reflect as we look at the life of Israel and the mercy that they had received from God, the one who brought them into a land that was not their own, who gave it to them, who preserved them, who brought them out of Egypt, now had become an ungrateful people. But rather than hearing the stories from their fathers of how God had redeemed them and brought them out and given them all of these things, who said, remember, we were slaves at one time. We have all of these things because of the mercy of God. Instead, they gave themselves to other gods. And God would say to them, what other nation has done this to exchange their God for others? You and I ought to be reminded that God's mercy is not a right to claim Don't we do that? Well, God's merciful. God will have pity on me. God is gracious. And we conceive of sinful plans in our hearts and we, we take delight in little sinful things and we, we hide things in the dark corners of our hearts and we, we think uh, sinful thoughts and, and we harbor these things and we take little bits of time to, to plan and meditate on them and mull them over in our minds. We think, well, God will forgive me. That's exactly the attitude that Israel had. God's mercy is not a right to claim. 
Brothers and sisters, if he has had mercy on you, the objective of that mercy is that you would go on and walk worthy of him to live a life of thankfulness. This is what God required of his people. This is what, how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or in 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you think that you're exempt from the temptations that overtook the hearts of Israel and led them astray? The ones who had a right uh, by covenant to the promises of God who could say, you are my God, and abandoned it and inherited curses instead? Do we think that we're going to come into the promises of God by turning our faces to Him? He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree for what? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God bound Himself to an unfaithful people. God promised curses upon them, but that's not the last word, is it? In a remarkable turn, at the end of this chapter, a totally unexpected word comes. And the last thing that we see is God promised restoration. Read with me verses 10 and 11. Yet... These are some of the wonderful passages of Scripture, aren't they? I know our youth on a couple of Wednesday nights have been reflecting on the the wonderful phrase in Ephesians, but God. Here we have it again, yet. This is a wonderful word. Yet. Hope is held out. God says the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. What? 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 Are you kidding me? Which cannot be measured or numbered? And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. We might think to ourselves, maybe this is is the moment where Hosea has, um, maybe he's partaken of a little bit too much wine, as we read about with Ahasuerus. Maybe he's taking counsel from some bad guys who are giving him bad counsel. Surely, these words cannot come to this people. 
I mean, think of everything that they have done. Their, their king, Jeroboam, set up calves, golden calves, in the likeness of the one Aaron made at the, at the northernmost point in the kingdom and at the southern point, so that whether you went out either way, you could worship a golden calf. These are the promises that come to this people. What kind of a God is this? It is a God who remembers His covenant. He promises to keep the Abrahamic covenant. Don't you remember? Look at the stars. Abraham, can you, can you number them? Can you count them? That's a representation of how many children that you will have. And here God reiterates that that promise will be restored. It isn't lost forever. There's another promise. Look at it. Not only a promise to keep the Abrahamic covenant and to make them a numberless people, there's a promise to restore the land in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. I'm going to call you my people again and I'm going to gather you to the very same place where I gave you the promise, the curse. Now, this particular promise you have a special interest in because Paul indicates that it has been fulfilled in you. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, to you. There's a third promise. A promise to reconcile warring tribes. He says, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. These, these two kingdoms that came under a curse because of David's sin with Bathsheba, because the kingdom had been rent into two in a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, a central aspect of the promise of God is that they would be reconciled and there would be one people again. Why do you think it is that Luke would pay special attention to the Good Samaritan? Why is it that Jesus would go out of his way in John's Gospel to visit the Samaritan woman? The Samaritans are the northern Israelites. And the Gospels are indicating to us that this is the fulfillment of the prophetic utterance. God is restoring these tribes. But we notice, how are they going to be reconciled? They're going to be reconciled under the work of a reconciling king. Notice what he says. They shall appoint for themselves one head. There's not going to be any more period where we've got northern kings and southern kings. No more unrighteous kings. There's going to be one righteous king who gathers this people together. And can I suggest to you that the place we see the work of this reconciling 
king taking place is in the first eight chapters of Acts. Turn with me just for a second to Acts chapter 8. In Acts, the eighth chapter of Acts is where we begin the, the transition. You remember the missionary uh, call that Christ placed upon the apostles. You will be my disciples in Judea and Samaria and in all the nations. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all to the ends of the earth. Well, Judea and Samaria represent the two kingdoms. The work of the Spirit of Christ is to bring these kingdoms together. And notice what we see now, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, that is, of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There we have the two kingdoms, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What did God do? He, he scattered the people to preach the word, to become evangelists. And what was the effect of that? Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the one King, the reconciling King, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Listen, so that there was much joy in that city. Promise to keep the Abrahamic covenant Promise to restore the land. Promise to reconcile the warring tribes. Promise of a reconciling king. And let's notice one last one. There's the promise to lift up the faces of His people. And they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. What kind of a people will Christ make them? They're a kind of a people who go up from the land. They look to an inheritance in heaven. God's rejection of Israel was not a permanent thing. Think for, with me just for a second. How different is God from you and me? You and I like to make the first cut the cleanest, don't we? When someone so much as looks at us the wrong way, well, that's reason to eliminate a relationship. How quick are we to cast people aside? How quick are we to, to put them away with no hope of reunion and let, look, look at your God. Look at Him. This people who have committed untold 
harlotries against him. He reaches out to them with promises of reconciliation. What a shame is it upon us when the slightest offense ruins a relationship? In the book of Hosea, notice this thing, that you and I are the prostitute and Christ the Son of God is the husband sent to fetch us back. To reconcile us. Even though Israel was not faithful to God, God remained faithful. This did not change His character. Israel's sin did not change God from merciful to unmerciful. They did not change Him from loving to wrathful. And as we evaluate Israel's sin, and we will evaluate it in detail throughout Hosea's prophecy, you and I must be careful not to look pridefully at this people. The, the temptation will be there to, 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 to beat upon your breast and say, Lord, thank You that I am not like this sinner. Aren't you thankful that your God delights in mercy? Aren't you thankful that though you deserve to be cast away, to be called low Ruhama, to be called low Ami, no more mercy, no, not my people, that God instead has delighted to call you His people and to give you mercy through Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much that through Jesus Christ, Your only Son, we are the bride. And, and by nature, we, we confess. We, we are not a bride entitled to wear a white gown. We look at this passage and we say, of Israel, there, there we are. We are idolatrous, lustful, spiteful, revengeful, turning to other gods of all sorts, not devoting ourselves to You. We don't deserve to be robed in a white gown. And yet our hope is this. We are not depending on what we deserve. We are depending on what Christ Your Son deserves. Cleanse us from our sin, Father, and help us to walk as a faithful bride to You, to be single-hearted in our devotion to You. We, we depend on You, Lord, by Your Spirit to do this in us. Help us to be faithful in applying the means of grace You've given. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.